You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Dr. David Merrill, an instructional researcher and professor emeritus at Utah State University. David has been engaged in the study of effective, efficient, and engaging instruction for more than 50 years. In this episode, we chat about David's early studies and research, including his PhD at the University of Illinois in 1964. We chat about David's additional research activities throughout his extensive career, partly inspired by fellow educational researchers B.F. Skinner and Robert Gagne. David outlines the central role of problems, and more significantly, problem solving in instruction and how this relates to content, steps and procedures, comprehending processes, and responding to conditions. We explore a simple yet profound metaphor of drawing a picture with just three coloured crayons, red, yellow and blue, as the inspiration for his approach to designing effective instruction. David offers insights into his first principles of instruction, that is telling information, showing examples, asking people to remember information, and finally, taking that information and applying it to solve a problem. Finally, we chat about alternative representations of knowledge and content in an era of advanced technology and artificial intelligence, such as simulations, as well as some of the other future possibilities of instructional design. Here's my conversation with David Merrill. Good morning, good afternoon, David. Very pleased that we are having this conversation. Thank you very much. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, I always marvel at the technology we have, where we're both sitting in our studies halfway around the world, like we're in the next room. Yeah, it is. It is great. It's kind. Of, where I'm in Sydney. You're in Utah in the United States. Right. So that's true. I want to go back in time. And we can go back as far as you, you know, you feel is necessary. But I want to find out more about you and what 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 were some of your motivations or even back in in um in school, were you a good student, for example, or what sort of subjects were you interested in? Well, let me let me back up the very beginning. I was raised in a very small town here in Utah called Farmington. Uh it was very unusual that somebody my background would end up as a college professor, but nevertheless, here I am. Uh, I want to jump forward a little bit. I served as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and and when I was serving, we used to knock on doors and talk to people, and uh, I remember early in in the mission, uh, my companion was trying to teach me what to do, so we went to a door, knocked on the door, man came, and he said, Mr. Brown, have you ever wondered why there's so many churches in the world today? Mr. Brown said, never thought about that my whole life. And my companion said, well, just like you, Mr. Brown, many people have had that question. And I went, what? (laughs) Wait a minute. minute." And that really was the beginning of my interest in education. I said, uh, that missionary experience, I said, there's got to be a better way. I did have the fortunate opportunity, the last part of that experience, to work with other missionaries and try to help them be more effective. And in the process, I decided, okay, I'm not going to be an engineer, which I thought I was going to be. I'm going to go home and be in education. And then I got into uh, education training. I found it very, very bad. Uh, the classes I did not like. They did not seem to be going anywhere. I thought. Well, what didn't you like I'll, about them? What What didn't you like uh, about they them? Didn't, uh, well, I wanted to know how to be a real effective teacher. I wanted to how to design really effective instruction. We were talking about how to count lunch money and keep from getting sued in school law and stuff like that. And uh, how to pass out papers, and I said, no, no. <laughs> and then when I did get into psychology, we're in uh, behaviorism and psychology, and it just didn't seem relevant to me. So I thought, I think maybe I'm not going to do this. And I shocked him up to pass. I said, I think I've made a mistake. I don't think I want to do this. And he said, well, uh, you could drop out, but you could decide that you needed to change the field. If you're unhappy, why don't you decide you can be in it and change it? And I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, go get a PhD. 
And I said, well, I thought that to get a PhD, you had to go become an administrator and teach in the schools. And he said, no, no, there are programs available right now, straight from a bachelor's degree to a PhD program. He recommended some. I applied, got accepted at the University of Illinois. Uh, and on an NDA fellowship, which paid all my expenses, which I've never been able to do it without that. So that was how it all got started. When I was in uh, at the University of Illinois, B.F. Skinner came to talk to us one day, and uh, he talked about behaviorism. At the end of his meeting, uh, he asked for questions, and somebody said, well, Dr. Skinner, tonight you said blah, 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 and in your book, such and such, you said blah, 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 and there seems to be a disagreement. And Skinner says, hell, do you think I believe everything I ever wrote? That was a great revelation to me. I thought, oh, yeah, okay. And then what he said next really changed my whole life. He said, what I've tried to do is make a few assumptions as I possibly could and see how much learning we can explain with those few assumptions. That really stuck with me. And so later in my graduate program, when I was learning about instructional design, I got the opportunity to read Bob Gagne's book, The Conditions of Learning, in manuscript form. One of my professors was a reviewer, and so I saw that before it was ever published. And I said, that's what I want to do. In fact, I wrote Bob Gagne a letter and said, you wrote the book I really wanted to write. And uh, we became great friends over that. We associated. I never was a student of his, but we corresponded and worked together over the years. And I had the great opportunity of honoring him at uh, a special uh commemorative event after he passed away. Hmm. At any rate, that's sort of where it all came from. So in the process of that, I decided I want to build an instructional design theory. If Skinner can build a theory about learning, I think, that, and I had already decided as part of my schooling, that instructional design was not the same as learning. <laughs> learning theory, I mean, it involves learning, but learning theory is quite different than instructional design. So I wanted to develop an instructional design theory. So that's, that's sort, of, sort of how it started. All right, so fast forward just a little bit. The opportunity uh, early in my career to write in the first volume of Research in Education it was published by, uh, I think, the National Education Association, I think. Anyway, uh, it was a big surprise to me. I, just a young guy, I just barely, I'm just out of my degree a little ways. I had already had two years at George Peabody, and now I just gone to BYU. And, uh, and they, uh, they, they, I said, okay, I'll try to write this. Well, what I did with a, with a student of mine, we looked at all the research that we could find about instruction, instructional design. And most of the research at that point in time was uh, nonsense syllables and, and memorization learning. And I thought, no, I don't want that. I want concepts. I want problem solving, all this kind of stuff. Well, in the process of doing that, we developed, um, I decided uh, in keeping with Skinner's comment and the fact that my father was an artist and taught me that I could only needed four crayons to paint a picture, red, yellow, and blue. I said, okay, what are the best, fewest things we can think of that we can describe instruction with? And I came up with in those days what we call the primary presentation forms. And that was sort of the beginning of my attempt to try to build instructional design theory. Now, as, as far as, we'll, we'll save that for a little later in this, as far as, the, as my career is concerned, as I graduated uh, with my PhD in 1964, I then went to George Peabody College for two years. I went, then went, was invited to BYU, uh, Brigham Young University, where I went for a year. And then I was invited to go to Stanford University, partly because many of my professors at the University of Illinois had gone to Stanford in the meantime. And so they invited me to come to Stanford to, to and assist as a visiting assistant professor, the visiting is important here. And uh, so I went to Stanford for a year. I just did not feel like it was the right spot. Uh, I felt like I was a teeny fish in a great, I mean, in a pond full of whales, you know, because all these very prominent persons. And I thought I just wasn't comfortable. And so I, I went back to Brigham Young University. They were completely surprised that I came back. They said, in fact, they didn't have a job for me. They had to scramble around to get a job. All right. But the first year I was back, I was completely frustrated. I thought I'd made a terrible mistake. I should have stayed at Stanford. And, and then I had an opportunity, an assistant vice president who was charged with media and uh, motion picture studio and all this stuff, called me in his office. And I couldn't figure out why he wanted to talk to me. And he said, what I want you to do is start a media research department. I said, I don't want to do media research. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, I want to do instructional research. He said, okay, then start an instructional research department. Here's a, here's a, 
two salaries for two full-time people. Here's a secretary, and here's a chunk of money. And I'm sitting there saying, wow. Oh, my that gosh. Well. Opportunity. Yeah. yeah, that is yeah. well. And so I, uh, I, in the media, he recommended a man named Harvey Black, who was the first person I hired. And Harvey and I became great, great friends over the, over the years. A few years later, well, a couple of years later, uh, we decided, Harvey and I decided, that we needed to integrate academics and research. And so with the research group I had, we went to the College of Education and we want to start a PhD program in instructional technology. Do, when, you say, use, when you use the term was, academic, do you mean like the teaching or the, you know, because research, just to kind well, of define... It, well, it seems to, it, well, it seems to me, yeah, the, the combining of the training of, of students with the doing of research. Yep, and in this case, the training of PhD students with doing research on instruction and media and related kinds of things. So because I had this opportunity to have a research group, uh, we were recruiting uh, students into this group. And the way we recruited them was to go to all the other departments like psychology and uh, other departments and recruit the students to come in our program. Students that didn't think that public education was what they wanted to do, but who liked education and training. So basically, we started a training department, and much to the consternation of our College of Education, by the way. But nevertheless, uh, we turned out some of our first PhDs at three or four years later. Uh, my first PhD student was Robert Tennyson, who ended up going to Florida State University, which is one of the top schools in the field at that moment in time. So we kind of uh, justified ourselves, and it was a great experience to do that. While we were there, uh, we also, I got involved uh, Pick Bunderson at the University of Texas had gotten a big contract with NSF to develop a computer-based instruction system. And uh, Vic and I were friends, and I told him I wanted him to come and work for me, and he wanted me to come and work for him. But we, when, this, uh, when he got this big project, he talked to me one day and said, I'm just not being able to do very well. I need, I need some help. I don't have enough people in my lab to do this. I said, well, get some help from somebody. And he said, well, who? And I said, look around this room. We're in a hotel room. I said, look around this room. There may be somebody that could help you. Uh, he said, oh, that may be. So we took off that uh, that very day and went to NSF. And the NSF What's said, NSF? yes, we want. What's NSF? Na National Science Foundation. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. um, and we have the National Science Foundation who was funding the project. And they said, yes, we want BYU to be involved. And so we became involved. Uh, a year or two later, they came out and did a site visit. Uh, and they came back and they said, we're going to, computers were a million dollars in those days. And they said, we can't afford to have three of these computers. We're going to have to cut one of them. And Vic said, oh, Dave's got to have a computer uh, to do this work for us. And they said, no, we're not cutting his computer. We're cutting yours. We want you to move to BYU. And so I moved the entire Texas lab <laughs> to BYU. And we worked on developing the ticket system, which is a, a computer-based instruction system. But my role in that was to take this instructional design theory, my primary presentation forms, and to say we needed to be able to build a computer system that had the instructional design built in. So rather than building everything from scratch, somebody ought to be able to bring content, and the machine ought to know how to teach it. Uh, and that was kind of a revolutionary concept at the time. And so this, this system that we designed was based around my theory that I was developing at the same time. So the theory I call component display theory, and it became kind of the base of the ticket system. So that was one of the early kinds of things. Um, beyond that, the, the ticket system was finally developed. Um, it uh, was very successful for a minute. Uh, and as all of these things are, sometimes they, uh, they're ahead of their time. I think this was ahead of its time a little bit. Um, and uh, for reasons I won't explain, I decided to leave BYU and uh, went to, uh, to a company that was started called Courseware Inc. to work for them. Uh, they were bankrupt when I got there, and I was fortunate enough to be able to get a position at the University of Southern California. So then I went to Southern California for 10 years. Uh, I went from Southern California. I went to uh, uh, back to the uh, – I came to the University of and then, wait a minute, Utah State University, let me get a straight. I went to Utah State University, where I spent the last 17 years of my career up until 20 years ago uh, when I retired from there. And so that's kind of my academic background. 
Um, I've had a wonderful career. Uh, I always tell people it's a whole lot better than working for a living. Uh, and my wife always said, come and look at him at seven o'clock at night or eight in the morning when he's sitting at his computer and tell me he's not working. Uh, but anyway, it was great. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, ask me a question. Anything else you want to know? Mm, you're right on time. I've kind of, as as I like to record these things with the time, we've got about Good two minutes. Okay. I'm interested in um, what was the actual um, nature? It's probably self-evident, but the, your PhD that you completed um, early on, what was it exploring? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, it, it, I was on a National Defense Education Scholarship. This was right after Sputnik in the 1960s, and uh and it was a good, really good scholarship. It, it paid my entire PhD career, including giving me a stipend for having babies. So we had two babies for her, and then that gave us more money. Um, but that was that. The and the program I was in uh, was uh, Larry Stalyero was my advisor. Larry Stalyero wrote the first monograph on uh, uh, instructional and on teaching machines. Uh, so he wrote the first monograph on teaching machines, and I got to work with him. We had our own computer uh, as a graduate program. Uh, we actually, the internet was not, it was ARPANET at those days. Uh, so we had ARPANET, uh, one of the very first people were sending messages back and forth across the room because that's about as far as you could send them at those days. Uh, and, uh, and we developed computer-based instruction. And so my dissertation was uh, studying uh, feedback mechanisms, but the, the uh, tool I used was to develop a program in imaginary science that was delivered on our computer-based instruction system that we had. So that was kind of my early experience there. Um, and so anyway, that's and, that, and so it was a very unusual program, very unique program. And I'm also interested in, did you do, in amongst all of those years, did you do much, um, or tell us about your actual teaching, like face-to-face -face or, or... Okay. Uh, I, well, I, I, I began my career teaching at the George Peabody College. I was very fortunate in my entire career. I always had a research appointment. So I usually taught two courses a semester and did research half of the time. And so very fortunately, all of my assignments had that kind of an arrangement. So I started teaching at George Peabody. I taught every year. After that, I taught at BYU. I taught at Stanford. I came back to BYU. Uh, and then I went to USC. And then I taught at at uh, Utah State University. So uh, almost 60 years as a professor uh, and uh, advised lots and lots of graduate students uh, from all over the world, which is probably the best part of my career to meet all these wonderful people. I love being a professor because every year in the fall, you need to meet all these new, very bright people that are gonna be the leaders in the world. And it was just an exciting kind of a career. So yes, and I, I a lot of my students said that I was a really good mentor, uh, and uh, many of them went on to careers, uh, and many of them are people that you would know, right? Charlie Rigaluth, I'm sure if you're in this field, you know, I was one of my students, and uh, and others that, uh, that we had a good, it was a wonderful time, good time to do that. The greatest thing I miss being retired is that I don't have these students around me all the time, and it's not quite as stimulating. Well, I, I need one more thing to tell you, and yep. that is that I, I'm a grandfather of 28 children, a father of six, and a great-grandfather of 37 great-grandchildren. That's the most important accomplishment of my life. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Now, you had said earlier that you wanted to create a theory that everyone could relate to. What does that mean? And how how did you go about, what did you do? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, the first thing, the first paper that, I, that we wrote, I reviewed as much of the literature as I could find on teach on the instructional design of complex learning, uh, concept learning, problem solving, and there wasn't a whole lot in those days, but in the process of doing that, because I had my Skinner idea, I wanted just a few things that were a red, yellow, and blue crayon. I said, what are the primary, what are the primary, I would call them now learning events 
were the primary learning events. And I decided that there were really uh, three or four primary learning events. Uh, one of those was to um, tell uh, information. Another one was to show examples. Another one was to ask people to remember information. And the other one was to take the information and apply it to an example, solve a problem, so forth. And I thought that those four things, uh, tell, show, ask, and do, as I, as I relic, uh, can, can be used uh, as a basic foundation. And in fact, I now will I say in the papers and things that I write that I think if you don't have those four uh, learning events, uh, clearly defined for students, the learning is not going to be as effective. But now the second part of this whole idea is there must be, if there's, if there's only a few learning events, there must be only a few kinds of, of content. And of course, content gets very complicated because we got all kinds of fields of study and so forth and so forth. So I said, what underneath all of this? And again, this came about by reading and studying and talking with people and so on as it couldn't long. But as we talked about all this, I said, you know, it seems to me, well, and also I have to say very influenced by Bob Gagne as well. But as we talked about this, I said, okay, finally, after massaging this over these many years, I said, there's, there's really basically four kinds of content. There, there is what I would call uh, remembering information. Uh, and that's, you know, kind of facts and uh, a lot of things under that. Classifying concepts, classifying groups of things, concepts for those listeners, the concept is any kind of set or group of things. And most of our world is, is concepts. I mean, every word we use usually refers to a set of things uh, that are somehow related, not that a single thing. And the basic building of learning are concepts. If I don't know, if I can't identify what the things are that we're talking about or what the events are that we're talking about, then I can't talk about them. And so uh, classifying concept is kind of the basic kind. The next one is uh, executing procedures, being able to carry out a, car a set of steps. And this involves first recognizing those steps when you see them, as well as being able to do those steps. Uh, and and so lots of procedures, especially when you get in the military training, they're very, very good at teaching procedure, procedure after procedure. Uh, but it, it, that depends also, the procedures really depend on knowing the concepts that are involved in the procedures. The next kind is comprehending processes. Uh, and this is what science and uh, learning and everything is all about, is what are all the processes we have in the world and how do they work? And, and to comprehend a process means I need to be able to know what the, what the, the pieces are and how they interact with each other and what the, what the consequences. I talk about this as, as a set of conditions and the consequence that follows from those conditions. I need to be able to recognize that. And, the, and the, the learning is involved here is not just remembering. The learning involved is to be able to predict a outcome from a set of conditions or the other way around is if I have an outcome that I didn't expect, work backwards, we call that troubleshooting sometimes, but what conditions weren't there? And that's what I mean when I say comprehend a process. And then finally, you can combine all three of these things into problem solving. And problem solving involves each of these things. Uh, it involves uh, a set of steps, which lead to a set of conditions. That conditions leads to a consequence that you want to have. And so that there's... Uh, the steps of the of the uh, procedure, there's the conditions of the comprehend. But within that, within it, within the steps, I need to know what those steps are. I need to recognize them when I see them, and that's a concept. But when it comes to a, the condition that results, I need to be able to recognize that condition when I see it. I need to know the properties of that condition. That's a concept as well. So solving a problem involves concepts and involves procedures. And it involves comprehending uh, the process, comprehending processes. I um, I'm just wondering with in this sea of concepts and procedures and processes and etc., do you have an example that you used to use in in that kind of you know to to explain yes. indeed to people? I will. I'll, I will explain <laughs> it to you. Uh, some of my students developed a course in training uh, furniture salesmen. 
And uh, so they had they paid a little video. The salesman comes in, uh, and uh, they they have a whole bunch of procedures. They teach him, and I won't go into details. But he talks, this is this is when you make a greeting, and then you try to assess needs, and then so they have these steps that the person needs to go through. But it isn't the step that makes the person buy. It's the reaction of the of the person to those steps. So that step should create a certain condition. That is a certain response for the from the from the customer. Now, as a salesman, if you don't recognize that response, then you can go through all the steps, and they're going to walk out of your store. I like so what that you it's need to- responsive. It's it's responsive in a human system. It's not a set yes. of fixed static instructions. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's alive. So I, I'm doing something, and I'm expecting something to happen, and I need to keep checking that as I go. If, if I go through my steps and I get the response I want all the time, and if they created the right step of steps to treat me, then the, the sales should always take place. The consequence should always come. Well, the pro- this is a, a clear a problem-solving event. Uh, the steps are a set of things I have to do, but I have to be able to comprehend what those are first. I need to understand what they are, be able to recognize those steps when I see them, be able to recognize the step when it wasn't done right. So that's a concept, bringing the steps. On the other side, I want to create a set of conditions, and I need to know what those conditions are. What's the property? What does the person do? How do I can how can I tell if they're happy when I when I greet them? How can I can I tell if I assess their needs? How how can I know that they're there? And so that's another set of concepts I need to learn. If I do all of those things together, then you know I carry out the steps. I observe the the conditions. Those conditions should lead to the to the consequence that I not. So that that's. A problem-solving event in a live human interaction way, but the exact same thing can carry on if I'm if I'm uh, doing something like uh, creating a spreadsheet on a computer. Uh, I've got steps that I need to carry out, but when I carry out those steps, something happens on the computer, and if if, if what I doesn't it doesn't happen what I think is going to happen, then I, I, it's not going to happen. But and the problem is. I'm doing those that I'm using, I'm doing, I'm developing maybe a budget or something. And so my, I have a set of conditions that lead to that budget. I have a set of steps that create those conditions. If I create the conditions correctly and those conditions lead to the budget, then my budget will be adequate and, and I'll be able to, it'll be able to work. I believe that this simple set of things, learning events, they'll show, ask and do, Content types, remember, classify, uh, comprehend, and execute, and uh, can form a basic skeleton that any piece of instruction, I don't care what you're, whether you're talking about learner-centered instruction, or you're talking about tutorial instruction, or you're talking about video instruction, or online instruction, I don't care what it is, how it's delivered, but what your theory is, your your philosophy is, if you don't, my, my hypothesis is, and I've got data for this, that if you don't have these basic learning events and you don't have not identified carefully which learning events go with which of these kinds of outcomes, that's what the theory is all about. A given set of learning events are appropriate for each of these different outcomes. If you haven't matched that up in the instruction that you've done, if you've left some of it out, your, your instruction is not going to be as effective, efficient, and engaging as you'd like it to be. And so my whole goal was is to develop not a, a theory to compete with other theories, but to create a set of underlying principles uh, that can apply to all theories. And that's why I call it first principles of instruction. It seems to me that no matter what your theory is, I can look at it and I can say, what are the learning events? What kind of uh, content Things do you have in there? Uh, do you have, if I'm solving a problem, do I have concepts? Do I have execution? Do I have comprehension? If I don't have all of those things in there, they're not going to learn how to solve the problem. Or if I haven't spelled them out, if I haven't taken the time to have them classify the steps and the, and the, the steps that you know, have taken the time out to have them classify the conditions that are come. If I just run it through and, and left that for them to try to figure out, it's still not going to be affecting. And so the basic idea I have is that this is a basic underlying fundamental idea that should be in in all instruction. And 
And I guess the other kind of thing I would say is my, my favorite example is uh, Ted Frick at, at Indiana. Uh, uh, Ted Frick in Indiana uh, developed a course in plagiarism uh, that they put online. And uh, uh, several years ago, well, quite a few years now, uh, he, he was a, a big fan of first principles of instruction. So he took his team and they completely revised their course to make it follow these these things. That course now is delivered to at least 10,000 students every day. Uh, he collects data on the internet from, from this course. And uh, what, what we found from, and we're not talking you know, 100 students, a study of 100 students, we're talking a study of 100,000 students. And he looks at all this data, and what we found is those students who go through the learning process that they've outlined, uh, and they, the learning is set up so the students can go however they want through it. Those students that go through the learning process pass their test the first time. Those students that don't or only do bits of it or skip around takes multiple times to be able to pass their test on that. So that's one of the biggest pieces of data that there is. But there's other studies that have been done that demonstrate to the extent that you implement these basic kinds of learning and these basic learning events uh, and in instruction is it will it correlates with how effective, efficient, and engaging that instruction will be. So that's basically my yep. soapbox. I I like the metaphor very early on. You mentioned it a few times with the crayons and the colours. When very when you first um sort of engaged with this notion, did it did it kind of was it a, a slow build or did it come to you instantly this idea of how did you what was the process like um, yes and no um the the very first paper that we wrote we we outlined i use different labels for them than i use today but in that very first paper the first the, the, the nub of this idea came about uh, and then what's happened over the years is i've see i try to see is it in other things uh the first paper I wrote uh, I, on this, uh, we, uh, well, no, the first paper I wrote was we identified this by reviewing other things. The, the, the next first paper we wrote uh, is we uh, we tried to review all of the, the paper that was called First Principles of Instruction in 2002, I think. Um, I tried to review the research instructional design theories that were out there and to try to see if these basic things were present in all of those. And, and modified and, and massaged them around a little bit, depending on where they, what they were in these theories. And, and again, found some have some, some have others, uh, some have all of them. Uh, and, and so that was kind of an attempt to do research. And I've done that review several times with other people. Ruth Clark did, uh, wrote a big paper on some of this stuff. And I looked at her work and Mayer's work. And uh, I wrote one paper where I took their principles that they came up with and matched them to our principles. And so I've done a lot of work. We've probably written, I don't know, quite a few papers on this, as well as uh, two books. Uh, and so it's, it's yeah, it kind of came all at once, but it kind of didn't. <laughs> it kind of came all at once, but it's been massaged throughout. And I keep thinking about it. I just had a correspondence with Charlie Ragerluth last week. Uh, and he said, there should be a motivation principle. And I keep arguing, no, motivation is not a principle. Motivation is an outcome. And uh, so, he, but he's talking about, he said, well, there's different kinds of motivation. And these different things that you do lead to different kinds of motivation. I say, that I agree with. But I do not agree that I can have a principle that says be motivated. Uh, motivation comes when you have effective learning. So I said, what I've tried to do, if you follow these basic principles, you will be motivated. That's why I say it's effective, efficient, and engaging, engaging is motivation. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. As a missionary, many, many years ago, in that day when that man said, I, I never thought about it, uh, and my companion went back with a memorized response that had no response to what he was doing. My interest in that point, that day, my I said, I'm going to learn how to do this. 
in a way that works, not just for missionary work, but period, how to do it. I, I wanted to know how to make instruction effective. Uh, so the question I had from that day forward is how do I, and well, I, these words came later, but how do I make learning effective, efficient, and engaging? That's been my driving question. And I believe that what we've done, and I'm sure there's lots more that could be done. I keep pushing the people in the field become do research, push, push the push the envelope. I've, I've tried to give you an outline as best as I can figure out over my several years of life, uh, and I would hope that it, it can serve as a as a base for people to work beyond, uh, as as Charlie just did with me, saying, "Hey, yes, okay, but I think there's different kinds of motivations." And here's I think how your theory applies to these different kinds. I said, "Great, I love that. I love when people take it and take it to a next step." So what I'm hoping, my goal was, I want to make a difference in the world. Remember, my college professor said, you can go try to make a difference. I've tried to make a difference. If I have, I think to some extent, uh, I am still completely shocked that we're having this interview at my age. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it, uh, I, I think I've been pleasantly surprised by the great reception I've gotten from people all over the world. Uh, it's been very, very rewarding to me to meet people like yourself uh, and have good friends everywhere. You know, uh, it, it just has been a, a very rewarding career. I've often said, I'd really like, you know, I don't have this option. Uh, I'd really like to be able to know what I know now and be starting my career again, um, because I really think I can help move the thing forward much faster and much further. But, what uh, would you do then? Only... What What are you plan? If you could fold that over, what What are you kind of? What's on your list of things to do? Well, I think okay. There's several things. One of the things we started to do, um, I I told you about the ticket system where we tried to build this theory into the system. All right. Subsequent to that, uh, we got another contract with a company in Germany called Bodan Software, and we tried to develop a, a, a instructional design expert system. Uh, with them, uh, again, trying to build in uh, knowledge and, and what we could do. Uh, and in the process of doing that, we started to study uh, how do you represent knowledge in a way that could be computed upon? I mean, if I... What does that mean? If I, if I'm, if I, if I have a, a computer program that does accounting, uh, the numbers are there, and it just manipulates the numbers. If I have a program that's going to teach and it knows what the instructional strategies are, how does it manipulate the content? And how, what form of that content got to be in so I can manipulate it? And we actually developed some papers that haven't been super widely distributed uh, on how to, how to represent knowledge. We, we created a thing called PNETs, Properties, Entities, Activities. And we pointed out, we showed that you could take any content and develop into a set of, of peanuts, and therefore you could develop an algorithm to manipulate those properties, entities, and activities and create simulations, create uh, instruction. And in fact, uh, we developed, uh, with one of my students, uh, Leston Drake, we developed a, an instructional simulator that you, you could literally bring your content to it and it would build a simulation for you. You didn't have to figure out how it was going to make the simulation work. And we did that by this kind of knowledge representation. Well, uh, I, I, that kind of fell by the wayside a little because it was too esoteric in a way. It was a bit premature. Now I'm looking at AI all over the place. I say, I don't think we were premature at all. Uh, you know, we would fit right in now. Um, and so, yeah, I would I would like to take the great technology we have now on AI, what's been done, the ability to look at huge databases and gather up information and make it look like it's real. Uh, I would like to really play with putting these ideas now uh, in the context of, of could we build programs that could literally build instruction for us that's really effective. We, we started to do that. We tried it a couple of times. Uh, ticket person was her first attempt. Uh, ID expert was another attempt. Ticket kind of went by the wayside. ID expert <laughs> uh, also didn't survive. Uh, and then we developed some of our little tools with my students, the simulator. Uh, they were very effective, but they're still not out there. 
So yeah, if I could have, if I could start today and have an, another class, I'd say, all right, we're going to start where they are. We're going to take this fantastic technology out there. We're going to take these few principles we understand about instruction and see if we can really, really push the envelope on instructional artificial intelligence. Mm. Yeah, because it is quite the talking point, especially these last few years and especially the last few months, the the kind of opportunities and um, possibly the risks involved with with artificial intelligence. Um, I'm just thinking of those students that you you introduced us uh, to very early on from across the whole campus. How how was it pitched to them? Like in terms of how were they involved with the you teaching them, but then also how did that fold into the research? And then I well, guess would that be a way forward? Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, what we did, our appeal was, uh, do you like to teach? Do you like to help explain things to people? And you have to be a physicist. And 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 they look at the education classes that are available for public schools, and they say, I don't want to do that. And I said, all right, but there's another alternative. And we try to present that other alternative. And so we appeal to them, if you really like to teach, if you really like to help people learn things, and you're not really interested in trying to pursue formal public school education, this is an alternative. Instructional design is an alternative. And so that was kind of the pitch we made. And therefore, we got people from all different kinds of areas. And, and the great advantage of that is they bring all kinds of different position, different perspectives. And so if I got a physicist working on it, I get really different perspectives. If I have a, a literature teacher working on it, in fact, I'm a literature teacher working on it. It's a little hard to work with. I found that people that, have, that know algebra and science follow my outline a little better than people that know literature. And, uh, uh, you know, but I think, you know, I, one of my favorite things to do is to work with, with professors or, or teachers or people that are in some of these other fields and show them how this does work, how this how this can be an appropriate kind of thing to do. Uh, you know, one, one of the things that we talk about is, it, it, one of the other things I didn't mention, we developed a thing called the, the Pebble in the Pond Instructional Development Model, which is a way of applying these things. And that starts with identify a problem, identify the problem in your area. Now that works great if I'm in accounting or if I'm in, uh, math or science or, you know, they, problems are pretty obvious to them. If you're a literature teacher and I say, think of a problem, they say, uh, what? I say, what, what problem do you want them to solve? I mean, aside from you want to teach them to be a writer, why are you teaching this stuff? Why are you making them read all this literature? What's the problem you're going to build this up? I love novels. I mean, I, I, I'm a reader. I, lo I love to read historical novels. I like historical novels because I can look at the creativity of the writer as well as the history they're trying to represent. And, and I, I just find it very, very fascinating. And I, and I think, so when I start looking at these, so I say, what is this author? What problem is he trying to solve? What's he trying to get me to think? What's he trying to get me to do? Most authors don't write stuff just because it's there. They write stuff because they have a point of view or they want something to happen. And so what, what is that problem solving process? I, I scratch the surface on it. But there's a whole area I'd like to look at. Uh, we've done, we've developed problem solving stuff in biology when we were at BYU Hawaii. Uh, we, we actually developed a simulation in uh, anthropology. Uh, we, we used our simulation program, which we had used to simulate how to repair a pump. And we turned around and, and, and uh, how, how do we simulate the interaction of an anthropologist with a primitive group of people? Uh, and so that was really challenging. Uh, but those are the kinds of things that I would still have to play with. Uh, and those are the kinds of things that if I had a group of students and a, 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 if I had another Daryl Monson, the man that asked me to start my research department, uh, I'd love to do that. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to happen at this point in time, uh, but uh, nonetheless. But as at BYU-Hawaii, I was trying to work with the faculty to apply these ideas and, and, and then also to put them online. Because BYU Hawaii has students from 85 different countries, and many of these students, especially in the uh, Polynesian area, uh, don't have adequate education coming. And so my role there as a missionary for two years or three years, actually, was to try to uh, get courses online that would help these students in these various cultures 
get the basic skills they need, including uh, English language, to come and profit from a, a degree. Well, I was working the faculty. One of the work we was working with was an English professor. And uh, so I'm talking to him. And so I told him, I said, you need to make this a problem-centered course. He said, we don't have problems. I, you know, I could, you know, we don't have problems. I said, um, what, what, how do you teach this course? And he said, well, first of all, I make them buy the book because I wanted to have it and I wanted to mark it up and so forth. I don't want it just online. I said, okay, that's fine. In fact, it wasn't so much online those days, but he said, yeah. I said, okay. I said, so give me an example. And he said, well, uh, for example, he said, we, we studied a man from all, for all seasons about uh, Thomas More. And he said, uh, and he said, so I asked the students, uh, you know, to, to write, what do, what, what do they think about that? And I said, okay. Uh, and and so what do they do? And he said, well, well, they write stuff. And I said, how much of it is just repeating back what you said? And and, and how much of it is really thinking? And he said, well, uh, you know. I said, well, look, let me, tell me about Thomas More. And he said, well, Thomas More had this big conflict. You know, if he follows his conscience, he goes one way. If he follows the king, he goes another way. And he had this big dilemma. And I said, wow, that's great. I said, so when you read that, then people might have dilemmas in their own life. They, this should help them. And he said, oh, yeah. I said, well, look, I have a suggestion for you as a problem uh, for that particular reading. They could do it for any of them. I said, BYU requires students to sign a returnability agreement saying that we will not use BYU as a stepping stone to immigrate to the United States we will return to our country and, re and apply what we've got. Now, only about 50% of them actually live true to that agreement. But I said, so why don't, at the beginning of the semester, you have students write a little essay on the returnability. What do you think about returnability uh, and the returnability agreement? And, put, and just have them write it. And I said, then, after you have them read Thomas More, uh, then you say to them, write another essay on returnability. And he said, oh, wow, that's a wonderful idea. I'll use that for a final exam. I said, no, that's just one problem. You, you need to figure out what that problem is for each of the things you're having people read. What do you want them to be able to do? In this case, there happens to be a real problem that's available. But in most cases, there are things that in, in people's attitude or what they're thinking or what they want to do. You know, why, what's, why is this literature all about? I think that's fascinating, you know, and uh, I belong to a book club and I'm always raising the question, what the author wants us to know? <laughs> what the author wants us to learn? Sometimes the people in the book say, oh, no, that's not important. Just, you know, I said, no, it is important. I want to know. Uh, my, my brother is a, is a motion picture uh, writer, producer, director, and, and, uh, and I, I know because I know his work. I know I, I can see the underlying themes in his because I know who he is and I know what he's trying to accomplish with, with these not just telling a story, they're, they're trying to create some change. And so, uh, but we can do the same kind of analysis in, in almost every, in every field. I think if we can figure out what the problem is we're going to solve, and then we can use the appropriate mechanism that we've talked about for teaching those pro that problem solving. And, and, and I guess I need to point out that the problem solving I want to teach is not generic problem solving, how to solve any kind of a problem. It's specific problem solving. How do I solve a problem in this area? Uh, and, and, if, and then it would transfer to other areas, we hope. But that's it. It's to kind of contrast it with, with those that are trying to find a generic problem solving model. No, I don't. I want, I want a generic instruction model for problem solving, but the problem solving itself is specific. Yeah, it's like it, it It requires, in order for it to work, it requires a, a real-world context or it, it requires exactly. feedback, information and um, knowledge or whatever coming from the situation and then going back out to. Right, right. So, it's, yeah, so this the instruction really is, you pointed out earlier, is, is really dynamic. You know, it's when you're executing, when you're learning, when you're learning how to solve the problem, you're really learning how to, to play this interaction with the world, to observe, to classify what's happening, and to put it into your problem-solving situation. So, well, my final thought is this. Uh, I, my life has been greatly blessed by working with fantastic uh, graduate students, 
uh, from all over the world. Uh, and I don't think there's anything more rewarding than watching somebody develop an idea, get inspired by something and move forward. And so it's been my privilege to see that happen with some of my students, not all, uh, but to see them grab a hold of something we did together and to move forward. Uh, I think one of my favorite examples is Charlie Ragaluth, who was one of my doctoral students. And I remember I gave a lecture in class one day and Charlie said, have you written that down? And I said, well, no, because I was responding to the question that so-and-so asked in the class and it just was, I'm thinking out loud. And he said, do you mind if I try to write that? And I said, no, not at all. So three days later, he brings me back a paper that not only reflects what I've said, but gives his input of how, how he thought about it and how it changed. Uh, and so that was a relationship that Charlie and I had and have to this day. Uh, and, and that for me is, is the ultimate reward of, of being in this kind of profession. So if I have a final word, it's this. Anybody that's out there that might hear this, that happens to be in this field or thinking they want to go in this field or trying to be more effective in instruction, we've come up with a few answers. I feel good about what we've come up with. I don't think we're anywhere near what we need to know. And so I would hope that if anything can come from this, that if you read this as a student or as a professor or as a teacher or as a just ordinary person, and it inspires in you some thoughts, go next. I'll tell you one more story. I was lecturing in the class one day at USC, and uh, somebody asked me a question. They said, where about blah, blah, blah? And I went to the Blackboard, and I drew a flowchart on the Blackboard to answer their question. And one of the students sitting there said, where did you get that? I said, what do you mean? Said, where did you get that flowchart? And I said, well, uh, I just kind of made it up while I didn't answer the question. I, I said, I didn't get it from anywhere necessarily. I mean, I know how to flowcharting. I said, I apply what I know. And she said, oh, my gosh. I've never been so insulted. My life. I've never been in a class where people just made things up. And she stormed out of the room. <laughs> and I said to my students, somebody's got to make stuff up. How do you think we got where we are? Adam may have named a few animals, but since then, people have been making stuff up. And I said, so why not me? And more important, why not you? And that's my final message. Why not you? In this episode, I chatted with Dr. David Merrill, an instructional researcher. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes. I encourage you to explore Dr. Merrill's website with background information and links to an extensive catalogue of academic literature. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.